0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and The Future for Investors. Also joining me in the studio today is Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha at WisdomTree. Please note... I'm a registered representative of Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. The discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree its affiliates. We have a great show lined up for the, the first segment. Uh, I believe we're going to have Chris Jones of Financial Energens, uh sort of a very innovative financial planning advice-type firm. Uh, it'll be an interesting conversation with Chris. In the second part of the conversation, we're going to have an academic who's done some really interesting new research Came from Wharton now at the University of St. Louis, uh, but Professor, interesting day. I know you were looking mm-hmm. forward to the Fed, uh, well, to the economic reports. Uh, we had some productivity numbers. Uh, the Markets liked the report today.
3: Yeah, uh, they, they certainly did. I mean, you're right. This this was a big week. Uh, the Fed uh, um, acting. Uh, the productivity report. Um and uh the labor market report today. Let's let's start with the one this morning. Um, certainly the numbers on the surface look great. I mean two hundred and thirty six thousand uh two hundred and sixty three thousand, excuse me, two hundred and thirty six was the private total, two hundred and sixty three thousand blew away the consensus by seventy or eighty thousand with a slight even upward um, revision of the previous uh uh two months. Um what disturbed me a little bit, it's, it's that caution that I keep on talking about. The participation rate fell two-tenths of a percent uh, again this month. It had fallen in March. You know we need a rise in that participation rate to continue to absorb 200,000-plus uh, new workers without a continuing fall in that unemployment rate. And indeed, because we did not have a tick upward in the participation rate, the unemployment uh, fell to a new cyclical low of 3.6%, the lowest in 50 years. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of on record as saying once you're at 3.5 or below, we've always seen wage pressures begin really to develop. We are right at that sensitive point uh, right now. So, I mean, I would have loved to see that participation rate uh, go up and the unemployment rate stay at 3.8, then we would have a uh, Goldilocks type of a uh, report. Um, Now uh, we got a really a blowout productivity report, 3.6%, only exceeded one quarter actually since the financial crisis and um, the one-year average of 2.4% is the highest productivity that we've had over the last four quarters, since the financial, I mean, this is bottom line, so important because we know productivity determines the wage rates, the real wage rates, um, real income, uh, standard of living. Um, and we are definitely seeing an uptick uh, in, uh, in those numbers. Um, that, that does mean by the way that we could probably grow GDP at 3% and, and uh, if we could stay at those numbers, uh, with only having 100,000, 150,000 new workers each time. We did have a, sl- a, a fall in the work week, so the actual amount of uh, hours worked is not quite as, uh, as stunning as the actual number of workers. So uh, productivity, blowout, great news. Uh, mixed today, I would say, on payrolls because, again, it, it, it highlights once again the tightness of those labor markets um, you know, the Fed, of course, let's go back to the, the Wednesday announcement. The Fed, as expected, remained um, uh, uh, even-handed. Uh, they did tick down five basis points because of, um, in the um, interest on excess reserves, to bring the Fed funds rate back down to around uh, 240 uh, in the system. And say they remain, you know, symmetrically po- uh, poised. A little bit of disappointment. Uh, the, maybe they would suggest because inflation is running below target that they might be thinking of a future ease. But uh, at this point, uh, Chairman Powell did not um, you know, express any uh, extraordinary concern uh, about that uh, running a little bit below at this point. Certainly not enough for them to really contemplate a, an ease in the rate.
1: And so now, with the the markets up, the S and P is. I'm um, looking at the screen up seventeen point four percent year to date. What's uh, how do you how do you handicap three thousand and above? And what where are we? How do you you know it was just flown so much? What's what's your sense?
3: Well, I'm I'm looking right now. We are uh, in April thirtieth. We we you know hit an, a high and then we we've sunk down. A, a couple of days, we are now standing exactly two and a half half S P and P points away. Uh, so you know, we finish this uh, Friday, just uh, uh, a little bit on the firm side. We will have a uh, another uh, record there. Uh, you know, uh, again, great, great productivity growth. Um, uh, you know, firm the, the reports. You know, there's a few that have fallen short, but. Uh, basically the reports are strong. We don't have a lot of negative guidance going forward. Uh, I would like to mention, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the dollar, um, you know, it could be a headwind going forward. We've got a little bit mixed over the last week. Um, but, uh, you know, has been strong, uh, a little bit of, uh, headwind for those S&P earnings, especially those, uh, multinationals you know my I've been saying that I could see another five maybe 10% this year um, uh, if everything goes well from current positions but we are at 18 times earnings um, and um, uh, you know I I wouldn't want to put any more pressure on this labor market because that's the only thing that could lead to the Fed tightening and that is uh, where if the labor market tightens enough uh, to push those wages above those uh, very good productivity uh, numbers. At this point, again, it's, it's been a magic situation. Unemployment rate 3.6 and no wage inflation whatsoever. Um, by the way, these recent wage gains have been justified, let me emphasize, by the productivity figures. And that means that unit labor costs are not rising. Um, despite the fact that the wages are rising.
1: And just one quick, you you gave us a tease on last week's show that you were going to have an op-ed on Stephen Moore. We saw it Monday released, and you were the professor for Stephen Moore, but today he bows out.
3: Yeah, yesterday, actually, he bowed out. Um, uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I think... You know, he didn't really bowed out because of all his writings about women. It was uh, there were an awful lot of them. And in our climate today, um, it was very hard to justify them or excuse them. So, you know, it was interesting because uh, really when when uh, when the Republican senators were asked, they mentioned the writings on women more than Hmm. do they object to his economic proposals or not. Um, currently, some would be controversial, uh, but I think, you know, they the other uh, uh, problems tanked his uh, nomination. This is the fourth that, uh, that Trump has put forward. None have gone through. The Republicans say to Trump, please vet these people <laughs> a little bit further. Uh, you know, as I pointed out in my op-ed piece, he wasn't going to bring about a revolution on the board. Uh, the board is... Been very one-minded and follows Paulo, pa, uh, Powell, and standard economics. Uh, I thought he would be a fresh voice, um, but uh, you know, I, I can understand the reasons why he dropped out.
1: Well, hopefully, we could get your name up there, Professor.
3: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh,
1: but no, thanks for joining us for some commentary today. Okay. I'm going to welcome uh, our first guest, Christopher Jones, Chief Investment Officer, Executive Vice President of Investment Management at advisory firm Financial Engines, uh, and Chris has worked closely with Nobel Laureate uh, and Financial Engines founder, Bill Sharp. I think they've written a book together that I was uh, reading through. Chris, welcome to our program.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, How you're, sort of a little bit about your career, how you got to Financial Engines and, and, uh, and just your, your career trajectory there.
2: Sure. Well, I uh, joined Financial Engines quite some time ago. I joined as a third employee back in the end of 1996, uh, just a couple of months after the company was founded by Bill Sharp and Joe Grunfest. Uh, Bill is obviously a Nobel laureate and former professor of finance at Stanford University. Joe Grunfest, uh is a uh, current uh, professor of law at Stanford University and a former SEC commissioner. Uh, and they hired me uh, along with Jeff Maginkalna, our first CEO, and, and uh, another uh, gentleman by the name of John Watson at the end of 1996. Uh, my role was really to build up a team of people around Bill to develop really what was the first implementation of automated investing for individual investors. We were sort of the original robo-advisor, if you will. Uh, and put into the market in 1998, uh, a series of services that provided personalized investment advice for individual investors, primarily those in 401 plans. Uh, it was uh, quite, a, quite an interesting opportunity and, and one for me. I was 28 at the time and had been in the litigation consulting world for a few years, uh, helping prepare academic witnesses to provide uh, testimony at, uh, at trial that you would typically read about on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, but inside of that career track was not what I was interested in, was looking to do something entrepreneurial. And, and it just so happened that Financial Engines came into being that summer of, of 96, and my timing was fortuitous. So uh, it's, it's been quite an interesting, you now almost 23-year ride. And your,
1: and your latest is, I, I believe, if I have the story right, that you guys have, have merged with one of the other big financial advisory firms, uh, the Edelman Financial Services firm. And maybe talk a little bit about the online, you, just, you mentioned being the first, the early in the robo space. Maybe we just talk about how that's sort of, sort of the current profile of Financial Engines mm-hmm. and, and how it's sort of true, you know progressed over the
2: years. Sure. Well, our, as I mentioned, our first service offering was an online advisory service. So this was non-discretionary investment advice where people, uh, primarily 401K participants, could go online and get specific personalized recommendations on how to invest their retirement assets uh, to help them reach their their goals. And this was really the vision of Bill Sharp back in the mid-'90s of wanting to take best practices from the academic world and from institutional finance and to bring them to bear on the needs of everyday Americans saving for retirement uh, he perceived a, a fairly large demographic shift occurring with the baby boomers uh, retiring, but also a shift towards a defined contribution kind of retirement model away from the traditional defined benefit model where benefits were guaranteed. More and more people were going to be relying on their own decisions to make and uh, to, us to help to invest their retirement assets to uh, or, or ultimately reach their goals. And Bill saw a tremendous need to fill that vacuum, to provide personalized, objective uh, investment advice to people who needed it. And the way to do that was to essentially productize a lot of that expertise that would normally be provided by people like Bill and Jeremy and others, uh, to productize that, that expertise into software so that we could provide high quality investment advice at a very low cost. So we started doing that in 1998, and the primary way that we distributed our, our services was through large employers. So these were typically Fortune 500 companies that would hire financial engines to provide investment advice to their employees, and that business did quite well. Uh, we we built it up over the years until to about a 30, 40 million dollar a year business uh, by the early 2000s. But we were running into a problem. Uh, at that point in time, which was we were having trouble reaching more than about 25% of the population. So we were, our services would be made available by these companies. It was typically paid for by the company or by the plan, so it was no cost to the individual. But pretty consistently, we had trouble getting above that that 25% engagement level. And so we did a lot of Research kind of went out and started talking to people even in their own homes and, and tried to be- get a better understanding of why was it that no matter how easy it was to use and how good of a job we did communicating these services, many people were just not taking advantage of them. And what we found was that there were many people out there that were just looking for a solution that would do it for them. Uh, could Can you just do it for me was a, a refrain that we heard over and over again. So in 2003, we developed a new service, which we called our Managed Account Service, which essentially allowed people to delegate the responsibility of managing their 401k or other retirement assets to Financial Engines for a modest asset-based fee. And that business really took off. Uh, We actually gained our first billion dollars in assets under management in about three months at the end of 2004. And today, Financial Engines is the largest independent RIA in the the country. Uh, We manage a little over $202 billion for about 1.1 million individual investors, uh, making us by far the largest uh, independent RIA in the country. And we are a fee-only RIA, so we don't take commissions or sell any investment products or anything of that nature. Well,
1: congratulations on being the third employee of, uh, you know, this uh, massive growth story over the last two decades. I mean, it's a real testament to I
2: mean, uh, what, what a lot of, that you guys have accomplished. Well, it's been quite, a, quite an interesting ride over the years. We've had some ups and downs, but it's been, uh, generally speaking, been quite, a, quite an impressive place to be. And, and there are a lot of very impressive people who made enormous contributions along the way. I can't take, uh, can't, can't, can't take credit for all of it, for sure.
1: When you think about your sort of investment philosophy and and sort of the main things that you're sort of educating these these uh, millions of households, um, how 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 flexible is your investing approach? Is it you know a lot of um, sort of basic passive buy low cost Vanguard type beta, or is it you know are you are do you do work with the active side of things? I mean, I was reading your book mm-hmm. from about ten years ago, I think that. Was was you know skeptical on some of the value of active management? Just curious on your yeah. big big, well, big we, do,
2: we do make use of both active and passive instruments. So uh, across our book of business today, roughly seventy to seventy-five percent of the investments that we uh, place money into are what I call passive investments, index funds uh, or ETFs, uh, and about twenty-five to thirty percent of those investments are in active. I would say from a philosophical standpoint we are not uh, religious zealots when it comes to passive investing. We do recognize that passive instruments outperform the the majority, about three-quarters of the time, uh, you know, similar active instruments. But we also recognize that uh, markets are not perfectly efficient and that there are opportunities for active management to provide some additional value. The key point that we put a lot of emphasis on, however, is that one needs to think about that on a net of cost basis. So we are big believers in low-cost investing, whether that's passive or active. Uh, the, the more expensive, expensive uh, the investment is that you're making, is the more you're paying the investment manager, the fewer dollars that you get to keep as an investor, and, and that's a one-for-one trade-off. It's pretty simple kindergarten math. Uh, you know, 100 basis points in additional expenses means 100 basis points compounded that you don't get to uh, take advantage of as an investor. And for those reasons, we tend to build portfolios that are very low cost. Now, what's happened over time is the the percentage of passive investments in our portfolios has actually gone up, and that's primarily been because of the investment lineups of large 401k plans in this country. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, it was not uncommon for many of those plans to offer retail mutual funds, many of whom were actively managed. These days, more and more large plan sponsors are switching to institutionally managed projects collective investment trusts, uh, institutional index funds, et cetera, that have very, very low cost. uh, And that's made the recommendations of our our engines kind of shift a bit more towards passive over the last five, uh, six years, even though there's not been any change in investment philosophy. But the bottom line is uh, we do think that both both products have a a role to play uh, and that as long as you're doing a good job of managing the expense side of the equation – uh, you can find instruments that are uh, likely to add a little bit of value. But we're not the kind of investor that's going to out, go out there and, and you know, swing for the fence and, and invest in really high-risk types of active products.
1: Uh let me remind listeners you're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, here with co-host Lee Chen Ren, talking to Chris Jones, the Chief Investment Officer, Executive Vice President of Investment Management at Financial Engines, now the largest RIA in the country with over $200 billion, uh, of assets under management. And so, Chris, what do you think about the, you know, you mentioned being the early uh, online robo, there's been this proliferation of a lot of the online services. I mean, how do you see the future evolving you're doing with a lot of the 401k participants um where how do you see just the need for that online experience or just the the involvement of the the industry shaping up
2: yeah well as i as i mentioned uh in our history when we started introducing discretionary investment management uh managed accounts back in 2003-2004 uh, one of the things that we recognized early on was that there was a diversity when it comes to how people like to receive investment advice. There's a minority of the population out there that is very interested in doing things online. And that minority has grown in size, but it's still quite a bit of a, a minority overall. Uh, where interacting online, getting recommendations, implementing those recommendations online and so forth is, is fairly uh, acceptable to them. But we found in our experience there were lots of people who wanted to talk to a human being as part of that. So beginning in 2004, we started building out a call center uh, populated, we call it our National Advisor Center, populated by investment advisors that people could call anytime uh, to talk about their situation, uh, to get questions answered, to uh, perhaps talk about what's going on in the market or how that impacts their, their goals or their, their portfolios. Uh, that National Advisor Center is now well over 100 advisors uh, based in Phoenix uh, for financial engines. And in addition to that, we found over time that there was a cohort of people out there that were interested in getting investment advice, not uh, by through talking over the phone, but actually having face-to-face conversations with an advisor. And in many situations, they were looking for a dedicated advisor, somebody who would work with them on an ongoing basis that they could look in the eye, get to know them and their family. And so uh, about five years ago now, we acquired a company called the Mutual Fund Store, which was a national RIA that had uh, branch offices in about 150 or so locations around the country. And then most recently, uh, last year, we merged with Edelman Financial Services, which was another large national RIA that also had about 40 or 50 branch offices around the country. Uh, and we've now combined all of those. So in addition to our National Advisor Center in Phoenix, where people can talk over the phone. We have about 180 locations where people can go into an office, sit down, and have uh, interactions uh, face-to-face with an investment advisor. Uh, We really see the blend of technology and humans as really the future. Um, I think the current crop of robos out there that have primarily focused on a pure digital experience are doing some interesting things from a customer experience standpoint. They've got some really nice user uh, interfaces. They've done a nice job of making it very convenient for people to to sign up for these kinds of services. But ultimately, when you're talking about hard-earned nest eggs of families who are 50, 60 years old, have been working for 20 or 30 years, they've worked really hard to build up this nest egg. It's very, very difficult for those families to hand over a half a million dollars or three quarters of a million dollars to someone where there's not a face that they can uh, uh, speak with or or talk to. I think you know when you're talking about millennials that have twenty or thirty thousand dollars, that's a different trade-off, a different trust barrier, if you will. What we found is for the majority of the assets out there uh, for people who are looking for help, it's typically for folks who are over fifty. And many of those, not all of them, but the great majority of them are looking for investment advice with a human being being part of the delivery process, whether that's over the phone or face to face.
4: Uh, hi, Chris. This is Li Chen. It's very interesting. I, I wonder uh, whether you can talk about it. Since you're managing the money for people, you mentioned like above 50. Like, what's the life cycle kind of uh, investment philosophy of financial engines? Like, do you take mm-hmm. the kind of, uh, you know, glide path idea or do you do a little bit more complex um, than than that?
2: It's a little uh, of a mix in between. So the default is we do have glide paths associated with uh, the investment horizon of the individual or that particular household. Everything that we do at Financial engines is tailored to the specific needs of that household. So unlike most of the vendors out there that rely on a handful of model portfolios, we actually generate personalized investment recommendations that are tailored to the needs of that household. So that would encompass things like their investment horizon, what their other sources of retirement income may be, what their risk preferences are, uh, outside assets, things that we don't manage, how would that influence the kinds of recommendations we provide? So, for example, it's, it's not uncommon in large 401k plans for a part of the population to have a cash balance plan as part of their retirement income to the extent that people have a large position in a cash balance plan, that's a very low risk, very almost cash-like instrument in terms of its economic exposures. And you'd want to adjust the way that you manage your 401k or your IRA or your taxable assets to compensate for that that low risk position. So when we generate uh, recommendations, we do have a notion of a default glide path in mind, but we allow for people to say, okay, that's great for the average person, but I have more risk tolerance than that, or I have less risk tolerance than that. I want a more conservative or more aggressive uh, strategy, given those circumstances. And also, here are the other sources of income that I'm going to be relying on, whether that's Social Security or pension income or cash balance or maybe uh, rental income from uh, uh, real estate or something like that. We can take all that into consideration and come up with a recommendation that is tailored to the needs of that specific individual or household.
1: Yeah, I saw in, in in your book you talked about if you have more than ten years, consider having sixty percent equities, and and I'm wondering as you think about uh, just people living longer and the demographics as you go. I mean, are you are you finding this struggle as the baby boomers who want who can't, can afford to take less risks as they're retiring, but also they're living longer, so they need to take more? I'm just wondering how you're 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 balancing that delicate uh, balance there. Yeah. It-
2: I mean, it is, it is a bit of a uh, conversation that depends on the circumstances of the particular household and the personality of the individuals involved. Generally speaking, we do recommend that people have substantial equity exposure well into retirement because uh, it is the best hedge against uh, inflation, the erosion due to inflation. And uh, on balance, many of the people, the households that we work with, are going to live a relatively long time in retirement. So if you think about the demographics of populations of people who work with investment advisors or who work at large 401k plans, generally speaking, that's a healthier population than the average, uh, say, the Social Security population, if you think of it that way. And uh, that means they're going to live typically into their 80s, sometimes well into their 90s, or even uh, early hundreds. And I would say on balance, we take the point of view that if you think about all of the risk factors that could influence longevity in the future, I would say there's asymmetric risk in the direction of people living longer than expected uh, due to medical uh, advances, technology, et cetera. Uh, We could very well see some breakthroughs over the next decade or so that could continue to or significantly expand uh, lifespans beyond where they are now. Given all that, I think you want to uh, remain fairly invested in, in, in assets that will have reasonable expected returns to help keep up with uh, with those advances in longevity. Um,
4: actually, uh, but, just but to the follow, right up.
2: depends on the person. Yes.
4: Yeah, right. sorry, just to follow up. So, like, even f- suppose someone already entered a retirement, like, do you have um, like a certain kind of a um, Personalize the recommendation based on different stages of retirement, or like just want to understand a little bit more on those. Yeah,
2: we do. So, for instance, in the uh, workplace side of our business, we offer a service we call Income Plus, and basically, what that does is for people that are already in retirement and are thinking of, are are interested in taking that uh, nest egg that they've developed in their 401 k plan and translating that into retirement income. We offer a service that essentially takes that pool of assets and manages it using liability-driven investing techniques, LDI techniques, which are commonly employed in large pension plans. The basic idea is that we structure uh, an investment portfolio that's designed to yield sustainable lifetime income uh, that can be maintained for the rest of that person's life. And the way that we do that is to divide the portfolio essentially into three buckets. Uh, one bucket is invested in what we call a floor portfolio. It's designed to emulate something along the lines of a treasury bond ladder. We can't do that exactly in those 401k plans, so we're using fixed income instruments of various durations to try to immunize the payments that would be coming out of this 401k over the next, say, 20 years. Then there's a pool of money that is uh, also managed typically in fixed income that is designed to help that or allow that household to lock in whatever that four level of income is for the rest of their life through the purchase of a fixed immediate annuity outside of the 401k plan. And that can happen any time of their choosing. That could happen anywhere between age 65 all the way up to age 85. And then about 20 to 25 percent of the assets are invested in equities, typically diversified equities, and would be gradually reinvested into that floor portfolio over time such that the Nominal payment going to that household would ratchet up uh, and typically keep up with expected inflation typically two and a half to three percent per year would be the sort of typical uh, Increase but if markets did better than expected you would have larger raises and if they did much worse than expected you might not get a raise for for several years uh, But the basic idea is to give people a mechanism uh, That still provides total liquidity but allows for them to have a sustainable income stream from their 401k plan Uh, For those that that choose that, Uh, we're now uh, kind of further augmenting that service to really help people with the questions around tax efficient withdrawal across multiple accounts. So, when you have, say, 401k or IRA assets, but in addition to that, maybe you say taxable uh, assets in a brokerage account, what's the most tax efficient way to draw down those different pools of assets so that you're generating sustainable income, but at the same time, minimizing the proportion of that income that you have to pay in the form of taxes. We think that's a very interesting area and quite an underserved area when we look at the conventional wisdom and the practices that are typically employed by
1: advisors. Chris, we're running out of time for this first segment of the show. Um, Any other things you would like to highlight about the exciting areas of new research for financial, financial engines and where people can find more about what you are doing?
2: Sure, well, um, there's uh, quite a bit of information about uh, the company uh, Edelman Financial Engines on our website, so I would encourage people to take a look there if they're interested in finding out more. I would say in terms of the future of the advice business, if we go back 20 years ago, the traditional advice model was one where you were paying a highly educated individual, a CFP or a CFA, uh, to sit down with you, spend hours, understanding your situation, coming up with an investment recommendation, implementing that recommendation. thats a relatively expensive and time consuming process. And it's one that the consequence of that meant that most people who are getting objective, high quality investment advice, were relatively affluent people, relatively affluent households. Uh, What I'm very proud of at, at Edelman Financial Engines is that we have really, I think, shifted the bar there quite dramatically through the use of technology to allow us to provide personalized investment advice to a much wider range of people. So unlike most RIAs where the typical investment balance is a million dollars or more, our average client has $170,000 with us. The median client is only about $60,000. So we work with a very, very large and diverse population of people and we're able to do that and provide high quality personalized investment advice because we have built over 20 years, a really robust technology platform that allows us to generate those recommendations very quickly and easily and tailor them to the needs of of individuals. I think the future means that that kind of technology is going to continue to play a really big role. The delivery of the advice doesn't necessarily have to be done through technology. That can still be done through human beings. And I think one of the key assets that our firm has is we have hundreds and hundreds of really skilled very capable uh, financial planners and advisors that are able to help people with these tough questions and provide the empathy, provide the understanding uh, and the comfort that comes with having a human being help you with these often, which are very, very difficult questions. I mean, if you suddenly your spouse uh, passes away in the first few years of retirement, that's a traumatic event in your life. And having a human being that understands your situation, that can help you through those those kinds of uh, events is really what it means, uh, what what the value of financial planning and, and advice comes from. Uh, that's not to say that there won't be lots of technology solutions out there for those that want them, but I think the the future is very much finding that sweet spot and the hybrid between what humans are able to do, what technology is able to do, and putting those two things together.
1: Chris, awesome, very much. Thank you for Thank joining you. us. It was great meeting you. Um, hopefully, we keep in touch in the next half hour Lee least. Can I? We'll be talking to a former Wharton professor, Anne-Marie Knott, about her research on productivity. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM XM 132.
4: I'm Lee-Chen Ren, director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and you're listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. Our show airs live every Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM channel 132.
1: Our next guest is Anne-Marie Knott, who is the Robert and Barbara Fick Professor in Business at the Olin Sc- Business School at Washington University in St. Louis. Prior to her appointment at Olin, she was a assistant professor of management here at the Wharton School. Always great to get former Wharton professors back on the show. Thanks for joining us.
0: It's a pleasure to join you, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And so you're focused, uh, you have a book, How Innovation Really Works, uh, sort of looking at the connection between sort of management and and finance. How did you get that transition from management to finance here?
0: Uh, It's it's a long story. Let me see if I can be brief about it. But um, I came up with a measure of uh, companies' R&D productivity, um, and we'll probably have lots of opportunity to say more about that. Um, And... um, Uh, what's cool about it is that it predicts uh, growth as well as market value and I went to firms with it and I thought they would be jumping for joy to have this measure and they actually weren't (laughs) Um, they said that uh, the things that I was proposing to them they couldn't do because the investors would kill them I said well that's just crazy why would investors kill you for something that's in their best interest Uh, and that's when I realized I needed to understand how to connect with the investors as well
1: and so you, you do a lot of work around something you call RQ for research quotient. And so is this the measure that you were going to the companies with that, that they were worried about?
0: That's exactly right. So research quotient, it was originally called IQ for uh, to, it, it, I think of it as the company equivalent of individual IQ um, that was trademarked. So I switched to RQ. So research quotient um, and um, it's a very cool measure that um, captures the productivity of companies' R and D, so it translates their R and D spending into growth and market value, as I said.
4: Hi, um, Professor. Uh, in your book, you know, could you quickly summarize, like, from your point of view, like how innovation really works? And also, you have some um, different measures of innovation. Like, how do we measure innovation? Uh, so
0: those are a couple of questions. So let's start with the innovation. How innovation is measured. Um, typically. So often, particularly investors, I believe, think that R&D is the primary measure of innovation. Uh, and if, that, you know, if everybody were identical, that would be a reasonable measure. Um, it turns out c- companies are different. <laughs> Investment opportunity comes from the fact that companies are different. Um, so um, there's a study each year that's done by Strategy and formerly Booze, uh, each year they find that there's no correlation between companies on R&D spending and growth. And the reason is they're missing how productive uh, companies are with their R&D. Other measures of innovation that you use, the most common measure in uh, the academic literature is patents. Um, you know, the problem that we have with patents is that uh, there's two problems. One is only 50% of firms that do R&D file any patents at all. They prefer to protect their innovations through uh, trade secrets. Uh, The other reason is that patents aren't of uniform value. So 10% of patents account for 85% of the economic value of patents. So it's not a very reliable measure.
1: You have a – oh, sorry –
0: no I was forgetting the second question so I was going
4: to yes to that. I, I think uh, in terms of how innovation really works like you know quick s- summary like uh, how, you know from from your book
1: and, and and related to this is I mean there's we, we were at the beginning of the show with professor Siegel we talked about we had a very good productivity number recently you know people have been worried about that our firms investing enough for innovation you actually in, in the in the media and popular is always you know railing on firms for doing buybacks and not investing in their companies and you see you have some data saying that there's been a 65 percent decline in companies' research quotients, and you're trying to reverse that. So maybe sort of talk to that a little bit.
0: I would love to talk to that. That's that's my key mission. So once I developed this measure, I was able to estimate it for all publicly traded firms going back to 1972. And and um, you know the two things that I looked at were how similar are firms, so not very similar, and the other was I found a 65 percent decline. And what's what's really Important about that decline is that um, it's correlated with GDP growth. Um, and so my belief is that uh, if I can restore companies' RQs, I can, we can actually revive economic growth. Uh, and the reason I believe that is the RQ measure maps onto um, the productivity construct in Paul Romer's theory. This is the theory for which he just won the Nobel Prize in December uh, that links R&D to growth. Um, so. As I said, my mission is to try to get firms to reverse that, and the, the purpose of the book was to help understand what makes companies high and low on this measure. And so each chapter in the book um, takes perceived wisdom or conventional wisdom about what makes firms innovative and actually tests whether those things are aligned with R2. And in general, the prescriptions that are out there are not correct. <laughs> Uh, and then nobody's known this for years, and that's the reason why we, you know, the the RQ has declined because nobody was able to demonstrate that, or nobody was able to know even that we were declining because they were all adhering to what seemed to be, con- you know, the, the right wisdom about what makes you innovative.
4: Hi, Professor. So just to follow up, um in terms of what are the companies that are doing well, like I know you mentioned the, this decline, but in this environment, for example, like are um, multinational companies able to do better or or not necessary? like what are the ones that actually stand out uh, among this declining trend?
0: Oh, okay, so I, I put together a list each here of the top fifty. Um, my favorite company on this list is a company called Medicines Company. They're not um, multinational at all. They're they're rather small, but you know they do everything in house. They're very creative about you know, they're very efficient about the way that they do things. They're very creative. There's I, I have an article in Forbes on that uh, from last month uh, that that captures that more completely. Um, the the things the trends that have uh, oh, so but getting back to your multinational question, in general, what happens? If firms are really productive on this measure, they grow, and so they become multinational. So in general, multinationals should be, on average, they should be higher on this measure than non-multinational okay. firms. But I haven't looked at that directly.
4: So it's it's probably a result of you know being innovative exactly. and become a uh, uh, multinational. Um, That's right. So, um this is really interesting i w- also want to follow up that uh, in in your paper that you mentioned that a bigger firms are uh, usually is more productive um is it um historically always been like that um and also I want to tie this into you know the size factor because if indeed you know bigger firms are more productive, then does that mean, you know, um, bigger firms on average, you know, should outperform than smaller firms, which is a little bit counterintuitive because usually we um, think about smaller firms, you know, kind of uh, undervalued.
0: Uh, okay, so there's two things that are going on. One is that large firms are more productive on average. Um, but what happens uh, what happens over time is that ultimately – investors start to recognize the value of RQ, not RQ per se, but firms become, you know, their profit growth becomes reliable. And so they know how to value those firms. The reason that um, uh, the reason that small firms will outperform the market is because investors don't quite understand their returns, their RQ just yet, because their returns haven't become stabilized. And so that's, you know, there's mispricing in the market because of that. So that gives you the opportunity for high returns. Of course, there's the other ones that are, you know, that are un- less productive. And so, you know, I think it's higher variance in returns. Yeah.
1: Where do you think the companies, you know, don't understand? So I, if one of your main missions coming back to it, how do we actually get economic growth going higher? Um, what, where do you think they're, they're worried or there's they're some sort of misperceptions
0: lay there? Well, but, uh, so the, the first step is that they don't know how to value their R&D. Um, and so if you don't have a compass, it's very hard to know what are the right things to do. Yeah. Um, so the first thing is just to adopt the measure. Um, I've gotten some pushback that firms don't want to adopt a measure if they don't know in advance whether they're going to look good on it. Yep. <laughs> so that's kind of frustrating. Um, but once, that, once you have the measure, you can use it as a, you can use it as a compass, as I said. And uh, the book will give you gives you some practices that across the board seem to make firms more productive on this measure, um, to make their R&D more productive. Uh, one of the big trends that has hurt firms is outsourcing. So the productivity of outsourced R&D is zero. <laughs> so the more outsourcing you do, the less R&D product, the lower your R&D productivity, your lower your RQ.
1: We, we've been talking about this measure, but maybe you could give us, give, describe how it's calculated a little bit, just so people get a sense of what does what this RQ actually measure?
0: Oh, that's really important. Yes, we should have done that, I guess. So um, it's, the technical term for it, and comes from economics, is it's the output elasticity of uh, firms' R&D. So I don't want to get too much into the details, but um, if, if, for those of you who've had economics, there's something called a production function. So typically when we see it in our you know our textbook, we see that there's there's capital and labor and we understand the role of the production function is to understand the relationship between capital and labor and um uh output revenues. Uh so each of those terms each of those inputs has an elasticity uh which means the productivity of that input in generating output. So RQ is the exact same idea, but it's applied to R&D as opposed to capital and labor. So, th- so that's the, kind of the economics behind it, but the, it has a really nice tangible meaning uh, for those who don't have economics, which is the percentage increase in revenues that you get by increasing your R&D by 1%. Right.
1: And so the firms who are really good at spending R and D, ramping up their their sales by like three percent when they're only increasing R and D one percent, they're going to have a very high RQ um, because their sales are responding much faster than that growth in, in R and D. Yeah,
2: it's
0: not faster. It's you know, it's not faster. It's it's you know
1: the more. Just
0: in general, is it growing? Is the R and d generating growth? It's not the speed of the growth. It's the relationship between R and D and growth um concerning for everything else that's what's important about the estimation
4: process yeah so professor you also mentioned that you know from your study you showed that this measure has uh, some predictive power in terms of uh, for, uh you know s- stock market returns i do want to understand a little bit like so you know what's the story behind this pre- predictability is it some kind of behavior study why this is not priced in or something else um
0: Okay, so the predictive power comes from Romer's theory, um, and you can actually write out the. You can actually write out. Um, I just ex- explained that the production function tells you how much changing your R and D will change your revenues. Once you know that, you can figure out um, uh, how profitable you'll be from that, um, and once you and how much growth you'll get from that. And once you know those two things, that will predict market value. So the mispricing comes in when investors don't know the RQ because they don't know how to relate R&D to the growth.
4: Mm -hmm. So um, this is pretty new. So in in traditional um, kind of equity research, we have, you know, these typical traditional factors like value, momentum, quality. Uh, From your point of view, like based on your research, is this more of of a quality or it's something which is Really different from a typical quality measure.
1: Before you answer that, let me just reintroduce our guest. You are listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. We have Lee Chen Ren talking to Anne-Marie Knotts, the Robert and Barbara Frick Professor in Business at the Olin Business School at Washington University and author of how innovation really works and is going back to the lead question about what is, what is this RQ quotient is it really some other factors it tied to other this academic factors of value momentum quality
0: that's a great question the um, the neat thing about this measure is that it's got these economic fundamentals so you actually know exactly what you're measuring um, uh, and it's only loosely correlated with other measures, so quality is in a kind of an amorphous
4: concept, um, and I assume that it. Uh, well, I is assume it return that it's, on equity, those kind of measures.
0: Yeah. So, so when we do this study, when we did the you know the finance study to look at its predictive power for returns, we included all the all the main things in that, um, including momentum, which is the one people get most interested in, and. What we found is that RQ has twice the predictive power of momentum when we included both in the same in the same study.
1: And momentum is one of those factors that people say is one of the more more robust and and stronger factors. That's a big that's a big statement. Yeah, there. Is, yeah, we
0: were excited about that.
1: Is there a place? I mean, you mentioned putting together this list of fifty stocks that score highest on your RQ. Uh, is there a, a place people can stay attuned to that list of fifty stocks?
0: Uh that's a that's a great question I think it's on my, I think it's on my website but I'll double check that <laughs>
1: yeah no it's a, as uh, people look at it I'm curious myself to see if the big companies you know every day we hear of Amazon as being you yeah. know, they're, they're reinvesting all their profits every dollar they make they don't show profits they just reinvest and I'm wondering if that's oh, yeah. uh, maybe on we your can list.
4: highlight uh, in our blog when we write about this uh, radio uh, yeah oh, sure. yeah no I'd be happy to have
0: you share that um, uh yeah, so let me just say a little bit more about that portfolio. I'm not a finance person, so um, you know, the portfolio I put together is pretty naive. Um, but when I wanted to get investor attention, what I said is, you know, what is something that I could put together that would get their attention? And I said, okay, let's just take the top 50 50- Firms on uh, this measure in each year, and I do that going back to 1972. Uh, and each year, so put you know four two percent of um, you know notional assets into that, and at the end of the year, sell those off and buy the new 50. I should say that these are pretty stable. So about 60 you know 67 percent of firms stay in the portfolio from year to year. Hmm. Um, but I I I picked July 1973, uh, let that portfolio run until. Um, December 2015, um, and the market return was 42,000. And or no, no, the market return for the this portfolio was nine x the market. It was uh, 78,000 for the market, which is actually pretty good. And it was 708,000 for this portfolio.
1: Is that uh, a equal weighted to equal weighted comparison?
0: It yes, it's equal weighted annual rebalance. Yep, yep. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and they have the same beta, which I thought was interesting so
4: um, yeah we I think uh, this is really interesting. Uh, I do want to uh, have a quick question because the um uh in the u s uh, uh, you did your study on the u s have you looked at uh, international or is this measure like harder to come come up with for international companies uh
0: so two things I look at the uh firms that are traded on the u s exchanges, so that includes a sizable number of foreign firms um non-US, you know, non-domestic firms. Uh, So I I do have their RQs. The problem that I had when I tried to work with a global database is um, accounting standards. So I need, the next step is to actually um, adjust from GAAP to, is it ISRA? Is that right? Um, IFRA, whatever the international standards are. Uh, And then then I definitely can do it. it. It is comparable.
1: Very good. So where, where do you think the, the, the future of this RQ research goes? I mean, what's your, on your agenda for how – so you've got to do the, some of the international tests. I mean, is there – how else do you think people, you know, should try to take this research and either apply it in, in a finance world or, or, or what what's sort of the next avenues?
0: So I, so I have a few goals in order to be able to reverse the, the RQ decline. One is for firms to start using it just to track how they're doing – um, the second is to start adopting the practices that we know are higher RQ than the corresponding lower RQ practices, so start, start bringing R&D back in-house for an, as an example. Um, and then I, uh, continuing with the FERB size. every time I have an opportunity to get data that I can correlate with um, RQ, I do that. So... Um, continuing to generate new knowledge about what firms should be doing but what I would love on the investor side is for them to start using RQ to make their investment decisions so that firms will actually have um, will actually have an incentive to you know move these you know to move their RQ to actually reverse the decline uh, and I actually met with a CTO who said he had checked with his investor relations person to see if they were using, you know, if anybody was asking about their RQ and they said no and they said so we don't need to use it. <laughs> so investors are my heroes.
4: <laughs> no, I, I think that's where we, you know, we could uh, work on this together because uh, I am, uh, I would love that. yeah, uh, I'm actively looking at uh, the the, the openly source, the data that you had uh, available and uh, you know, I think really like some of the, for example, quality as a factor, you know, the it was not really formulated 15 years ago. Only through all these, you know, research through looking at how profitability relates to uh, investment decisions that quality finally becomes a little bit more consensus like in the last five years. And, you know, I the way I think of RQ is that in the next 10 or 15 years, there will be another factor which, you know, be kind of, you know, RQ, which is different from all the traditional factors. But... But just to I I think this is, you know, very likely as we do more research and understand this, this more as as you can see, you know, investors, they like to look at the top line numbers, you know, income, you know, shares, um, earnings per share, but they don't go you know, deeper and look at the underlying, uh, you know, usually called you know buried in the balance sheet numbers. Now, I do want to follow up a little bit. Um, well, we're actually
1: uh, running out of time, timely chance. So this okay. is unfortunately, I'm gonna have to Next cut you time. off uh, from the conversation. I know we've been really enjoying the, the conversation with Professor. Anne-Marie Knott, the Robert and Barbara Fick Professor of uh, Business at the Olin Business School at Washington University, former Warren Professor. I think it's interesting just quickly summarizing. I mean, everybody talks about value as being one of the long-term factors. Growth has been one of these troubled factors. And if you think about uh, Anne-Marie's research here on sort of innovation and R&D spending as this new growth factor, it is an interesting line of research. So I'm glad, Anne-Marie, we connected. And thanks for for coming on the show to talk to us today.
4: Thank you both. And so work much. together. We're good. Right, yes, we will. <laughs> so we'll
1: continue the conversation. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to Lee Chen here. As always, our sound engineer producer today, Danielle Bruno. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com.